Amen. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We are continuing uh, for the next few weeks in this series we've been doing on the book of Hebrews. And this morning we come to Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, that would be great. If not, don't worry. There's a pew Bible in front of you. It's also printed for you in the worship folder, and it will be on the screen behind me. So uh, there's a bunch of different places where you can go um, to, to see those things. I, I notice we may have a little discrepancy because up here it says Hebrews 10, 1 through 13. And actually we're going to read through verse 14. So be mindful of that. It's in your worship folder if, if it's not there. But verse 14 is going to be important. And so uh, just be aware of that, okay? So Hebrews 10, 1 through 14, and then we're going to skip down to verse 19 and read through verse 25. Uh, so follow along together as we do this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting to meet together, as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Now, I can tell you that the pastors, we we preach, you know, four churches preach all together in the same passages every week. And at our pastors meeting this past Wednesday, the pastors are getting a little weary of this book of Hebrews. Because it feels like he is saying the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, and, And in fact, he is. And the only conclusion I can make is he's saying the same things over and over and over again because he thinks we need to hear them over and over and over again. And indeed we do. Uh, And yet, toward the end of chapter 10, there's a transition that begins to take place in this letter. And all the pastors kind of sigh to sigh of relief. Because what's happening is, to this point, the Hebrews writer has been hammering us with these gospel truths to prove the superiority of the gospel of Christ over Judaism or over any other religious system. So, for example, 
he said, Jesus is a high priest, right? Who's compassionate with us in our struggles with sin. Or, you know, that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has put away our sins so we can confidently come and stand before God righteous and fully accepted. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten, he's told us. You know, all of these, all of these gospel truths, these gospel indicatives. And an indicative statement is just an, a statement of unconditional truth or objective reality. So there are all these gospel indicatives that he's been just kind of plumbling us with for the last, you know, 10 chapters. But here, in chapter 10, verse 19, there begins to be a shift that takes place with that word, therefore. Do you see that in verse 19? Therefore. And then in these verses, what happens is, immediately he gives us three gospel imperatives, three commands. So finally... He's moving past the indicatives and beginning to flesh them out in imperative statements, in command statements. He's going to begin to draw out the implication of the gospel. In other words, the gospel leaves us with work to do. And he's going to begin to show us what that work is. Now, what matters, and this is the whole point of this morning, what matters is the order that you put those things in. Because you see, gospel imperatives always flow out of gospel indicatives and not vice versa. Okay? The indicative... The indicative, the gospel truth about our standing with Christ always comes first and then the imperative. But there's always an imperative. So what I mean by this is this. Does God love and accept you because you're good? Or do you become good only when you realize that God has already loved and accepted you? See? Are you saved by believing the right things or do you believe the right things because you're saved by grace? Kids, teenagers. Do your parents love you because you obey them? Okay, just in case. The answer is no. They don't love you because you obey them. They love you because you're their children and they can't help themselves. Okay? I want my kids, I don't want my kids to obey me out of fear. That if they don't obey me, I might not love them. That's destructive. I want my kids to obey joyfully and gratefully because of how they've been loved. So we're in the car yesterday. And I bought a 33-ounce bottle of water. And my, four, my five-year-old, she's five now, uh, I get out of the car to fill up with gas, get back in. And my seven-year-old's kind of complaining to my five-year-old because the five-year-old has taken my 33-ounce bottle of water and refuses to share it. And first of all, if she drank all that water, literally, I don't know what would happen, but it would be bad. Right? And so I say, Sarah, why aren't you sharing your water? Did I, did I share the water with you? Yes. Okay. I've shared with you. You share with, see, I want them to obey. I'm trying to connect the dots for them in their obedience back to the way that they've been loved. So that they don't love to try to earn love. They love because they are loved. See, and that's, that's the important thing with this passage. So is gospel Christianity, in gospel Christianity, in gospel relationships, the imperatives, our doing for God always flow out of the indicatives God's doing for us. See, We don't do for him so that he will do for us. Rather, we do for him because of what he's already done for us. And that's what John means in 1 John 4.10 when he says, In this is love. Okay, Here's love. Not that we have loved God, (laughs) but that he has loved us. And sin is son is a propitiation for our sins. In other words, the foundation of our relationship with God is not... Our love for him and our commitment to him. The foundation of our relationship with God is his love for us and his commitment to us. And therefore, John says later, we love because he first loved 
us. Salvation is by grace. God loves us, not because we're lovely. He loves us to make us lovely. God doesn't love us because we first love him. We love him because he first loved us. His love for us comes comes before any response in us, good or bad, right? And so as long as you keep the indicatives and the imperatives in Christianity in the right order, then the result is is that it will produce this beautiful, wonderful gospel security. You can be completely confident in God's love for you. And this is what I want to talk about this morning, that gospel security is the necessary condition for gospel transformation. You have to be secure in the gospel in order to to begin to render to God the kind of obedience that he desires from you. And so I want to do two things this morning. First, I just want to prove this for you from this passage. And then I want to go to those three imperative statements and give you three practical examples from those three imperative statements. All of that from this passage. So let's just start, okay? I want to prove my, my contention is that gospel security is the necessary condition for gospel transformation. Okay, I want you to look at verse 14. And so either look at it at your, on your, you know, the insert in your folder or open a Bible, look at it somewhere. Because this is an important phrase, an important sentence. It's kind of the summary sentence of the whole passage. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does that mean? Look at it very carefully. He has perfected for all time. Once. And for all, and finally, present, objective, reality, perfected those who are being sanctified. Ongoing process of transformation. So, there's a definitive work that has been accomplished that is now on an ongoing basis being worked out into our lives to transform us. That's what this passage is teaching us. So, let's look at each of those pieces within that verse for just a minute, okay? He says here, the Hebrews writer says, for by a single offering, he has perfected us for all time. Now, what, what, what does he mean by that? And I think it means something like this. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, and if you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning, please hear this, because this is, this, is this is such amazing news. This is such an amazing reality. That if your faith is in Jesus Christ, God could not possibly love you any more than he does right now. There's nothing you could do to improve your status with him. And consequently, there's nothing you could do to, dis- to discredit yourself with him. You are perfect. The word in the Greek means something like this. It means you are complete. You lack nothing. In other words, you are at this moment in God's eyes infinitely more beautiful and good and holy and righteous than you actually are on your very best days. And that means that God could not love you more than he does right now. I remember... When Canaan was born, he was my first child, and I you know, never experienced anything like that. And I remember when he came out, and I turned to my wife, and, and she said, you know, what's he, how's he look? What's, you know, because she's kind of still recovering from the whole ordeal. And I'm over there with the nurses, and, and you know, what's he look like? How's he? Oh, he's perfect. Right? That's what you say. He's perfect. Now, he was bloody and bloated and, you know, but, man, he was perfect. Now, what did I mean by that? What does a father mean when he says of his newborn son, he's perfect? He means that he didn't need to be anything more than he was at that moment in order for me to love and cherish him, right? I mean, he hadn't done anything cute yet. He was screaming his head off. He hadn't hit a home run yet in baseball. I mean, he he hadn't done any of those. None of that mattered. He didn't need to be anything more than what he already was for me to love and cherish him as his father. And that's what this word in Hebrews means when he says, when, when it says that we have been perfected for all time. How? 
How? See, the text says there in verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who who are being sanctified. So what is the offering through which then we are perfected? And you have to look back up in the preceding verses to see that what the writer is talking about here is that the offering is the death of Jesus in our place on the cross. I mean, we've been memorizing 2 Corinthians 5.21 together for the past month. He may, and I won't quiz anybody, but it's, it goes like this. He made him who knew no sin. Can anybody finish it? To become sin for us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. This month's memory verse is, is the same thing. It's there at the bottom of your tear-off in your worship folder. He was wounded for our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the gospel truth that's contained in both of those verses, that's also contained in in the verses here in this passage, is that in Jesus Christ, God has taken our sin, and he has put our sin upon Jesus. And in his death, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He died the death that we should have died. And in doing so, he has taken away our sin. I mean, the truth of... The truth of, of Micah seven eighteen through 19 is so amazing to me that the prophet looks forward to what God is going to do in Jesus Christ. And he says he will tread our iniquities under, our, under his feet and he will cast them into the depths of the sea. I mean, did anybody else, is that just not, I mean, I heard, I heard I'm sitting in front of Ashley and I just heard her when Jonathan read that say, right? Praise, praise God. I mean, this is the promise that we've been seeing from Jeremiah 31, that he, because of Jesus, God will remember our sins no more. Is that good news? But it gets even better than that. Because you see, the offering through which we are perfected is not just the death of Christ for us on the cross, but also his life of obedience to the Father through which we are counted as righteous in him. Look there in verses 5 through 7. And the purpose of the quotation from Psalm 40, which is what he's doing there, is to show that what was required of us was much more than just sacrifices. God does not delight in sacrifices, the psalmist says, right? Sacrifices and burnt offerings you take no pleasure in. And so the, the, the psalmist is working these things out, and the Hebrews writer comes along and says, what really counts with God, what God really desires from his people is not the, the performance of sacrifices and offerings, but there in verse 6, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is what God desires from his people. It's what he most wants from us, and it's what we're most incapable of doing. <laughs> because sin is working in the heart in such a way that what sin begins to do in the heart is it turns us, it creates this besetting selfishness or self-obsession to where what I want is the most important thing. What I desire is, is you know, often the thing that, that gets fleshed out in my life. I am all about me, not about him. In the Garden of Eden, when God put the choice before Adam and Eve to obey him and, and live eternally with him or to disobey him and to suffer the consequences of their sin, Adam's prayer in that moment, in, in essence, really was, God, not your will, Mine be done, and that is at the very essence the reality of sin. God, not what you want, what I want. Me, not you. Not your will, mine be done. And because sin is so pervasive, and that's constantly being pressed out into our lives on every side, not your will, mine be done, we are completely incapable of offering to God the very thing he desires from us the most. But there is one who can, and one who did. 
There was another Adam that went into another garden. See, everything fell apart in a garden when Adam prayed, not your will, mine be done. Everything was brought back into harmony. Everything was made new. Everything was made right in another garden where another Adam prayed the very opposite prayer. What was his prayer? Lord, not my will. Yours be done. See, that was, that was not only in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, but all of Jesus' life. In the very same way that all of our lives, really, if you, if, you, if you kind of condense it down, all of our lives can be explained by the prayer and the attitude toward God. God, not your will, but mine be done. All of Jesus' life, every moment, every breath, every step he took, every, every millisecond of his existence on this earth was lived in the reality of, Father, not my will. Yours be done. And he is the one who rendered to God the obedience that God most desires and requires. And the result is that if you put your faith in him, not only can we be forgiven of our sins, but we can be made positively righteous. See, the second part of that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not righteous in me, the righteousness of God in him. And, it was, and that was the discovery, you know, it was that truth that became the earthquake of grace that shook the world during the Protestant Reformation, that the righteousness God requires of us is given to us not through our obedience, but through the obedience of Jesus for our sake and then credited to us. It's an alien righteousness. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, that means God sees you as righteous, but not because you're righteous, because Jesus is righteous and you're in him. See? If you're a Christian, it means God looks at you and sees you as beautiful, but not because you're beautiful, because Jesus is beautiful, and by faith you're in him. I mean, God looks at you and he sees you as perfect, this text says, but not because you're perfect, because Jesus is perfect. And by faith, you're in him. See, that's what we mean, we, that's what we mean by the doctrine of, just, doctrine of justification, that he is perfected for all time, his people. But look what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, through a single offering, he is perfected for all time, doctrine of justification. And then he goes on to say, those who are being sanctified. That is, that even though in Christ we are holy and righteous and beautiful in the eyes of God, he is now actively working through the Spirit to make us practically holy and righteous and beautiful. That we are already perfect. But he is perfecting us. Right? Let me say that again. The gospel truth is that we're already perfect, but that he is perfecting us. Both those things at the same time. I mean, there is a real expectation of obedience. That, that we, would become, we would be people who, through the work of the Spirit, would be being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be slowly overcoming our selfishness and through diligence gaining victory over sin. That, believe it or not, that over time we would become more joyful. <laughs> that we would become more peaceful over time that we would be more patient or a better friend or display a greater measure of self-control. The gospel doesn't make obedience optional. It makes obedience possible. And there's this expectation. So there's justification and sanctification, these two great truths that are being worked out in this passage. We are justified. We are made perfect for all time. We are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified by the Spirit. Now, there's a couple of problems. 
Two problems. We have to hold these things in tension with one another, and there are two errors we can fall into. And let me mention the first one briefly, and then the second one in, in a little greater detail. And the first is just this, that you can try, you, you, in other words, you can conceive of Christianity as justification without sanctification. And so you can live as if sanctification is optional. You can say, you know, and this is what would happen in kind of the church that I grew up in, in the sense of what, what really mattered is there was a point in time where you made a decision or you, you went to a revival or you walked an aisle or you prayed a prayer, and that was what really mattered as far as your relationship with God. And if nothing had really happened to you since then, it was no big deal because way back there sometime long ago, you made some kind of uh, decision that kind of sealed the deal with God. And the problem, the Bible knows nothing of Christianity that, that talks about justification if there's not the reality of sanctification. It's just not there. Because justification and saving faith is a work of God's grace in your heart, and the powerful working of God's grace in your heart that leads to justification will also lead to sanctification. See? But the second error is to get them out of order, and this is where we get into a lot of trouble, okay? In other words, you can, the second problem is you can base your justification on your sanctification. In other words, you can live as if justification is dependent upon sanctification. In other words, the way I know God loves me is that I'm a good Christian, and that's religion. And that's the problem that the Hebrews writer is warning about. The problem with reversing the order of justification and sanctification is that if you're not... that um, if Excuse me, I, my notes are kind of confusing. What, I can't even read my own handwriting here, or whatever you want to say. Um, is if you reverse the order, it will render you incapable of an obedience that will satisfy your conscience. In other words, if you base God's love and acceptance of you on your performance, it will end up with you being radically insecure and not sure how God feels about you because no matter how good you are, there will always be more you could do. And no matter how hard you try, there will always be ways that you could try harder. See, religion, and this is what he's working through in verses 1 through 4 in this passage, Religion can't get you a cleansed conscience. It can't help you with your guilty conscience. In fact, the only thing it is is good for is to make you feel worse about yourself. Verse 3, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin. So what religion does in a religious scheme where you're basing your justification on your sanctification, all it does is create insecure people who try to deal with their insecurity through their own good works. And then at the end of their good works, they don't feel any better about themselves. They only feel worse. There's more insecurity. There's more doubt. There's more, there's more obsession about sin. And the result in all of this is, is this fundamental insecurity that will make you driven at work to prove yourself. It will cause you to take advantage of people in relationships. It will lead you to live for the sake of other people's approval to fill the emptiness inside. It will create all kinds of distress and trouble. What we need is gospel security that is so profound that it can overcome all of our insecurities and overcome all of our selfishness and lead us to live lives of obedience to God. And that comes from having these truths in the right order. By a single offering, he has, has, you know, perfect tense, past action, perfected for all time, once and for all, those who are now being sanctified. Get them in the right order, okay? Now let me give you three examples of how this works, and then I'm done. From the imperatives... In verses 22 through 25, okay? Let's problem solve with the gospel in these areas. So look down at those verses. Verse 22, this first imperative. Therefore, verse 19, and then he goes into all that. And then verse 22, let us draw near to God with a 
and with a true heart and full assurance of faith, without with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Okay? So what he's saying is, is the feel of sanctification is an, a process of an ever-increasing relational intimacy with God as a person. Let us draw near to God. We've seen this before, right? Now, what does the verse tell you you need before you can draw near to God? Do you see it there? You need confidence. You have to know that God loves and accepts you. There can't be any doubt about that. If you have doubt, you won't draw near. Again, gospel security is the condition for gospel transformation. And so the problem is a guilty conscience. The problem is shame. Right? We know we're not right. We know God's angry with us because we all know in the depths of our hearts that we're sinners. And so this guilty conscience is a big problem. So how do people, both religious and irreligious, deal with their shame and their guilt? Irreligious people deal with guilt and shame by getting religious. Religious people deal with guilt and shame by getting more religious. Let me give you an example. I read this on Facebook. This I love quoting Facebook. And I know it probably terrifies. It's not, I'm not quoting anybody in the room, so don't worry. Don't go on a winch hunt later and check all your friends and see who, like, you know, posted. But I, I read this post on Facebook this week from a man that I, I, that I, that I love. And, and, uh, but, but just listen to how subtle this is. Jesus, I'm sorry for taking advantage of the salvation you freely give me, okay? Guilty conscience. I'm a failure. I failed. I've blown it. I've messed up. Now watch. Here's, here's the resolution. I promise to serve you and to be your slave every moment of the day to pay you back for the salvation you've given me. See how subtle that is. But what is that? I feel guilty. So what am I going to do? I'm going to become more religious. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be your slave every day. Right? And maybe in my suffering you'll look upon me and see that I really love you. It'll fail you. And the reason is, is because it fails as a strategy to get rid of a guilty conscience because the premise of the whole thing is to prove through hard work and commitment and sacrifice and slaving that I'm really not a sinner. But what happens is the opposite. Look at verse 3 again. And he sacrifices as a reminder of sin. So all religion can do is make you more guilty. And unless your conscience has been sprinkled clean, you won't draw near. You'll stay at a distance. And the reason is so much of what we call Christianity has a feel of formality and stuffiness, which we often misrepresent as reverence in the church, is because it's religion, not Christianity. And religion can't give you a true heart and full assurance of faith. And that's what we need. So how does the gospel heal our hearts of guilt? Well, it deconstructs the idea that God loves good people. (laughs) Here's what the Bible says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? Jesus died for sinners. Jesus loves sinners. God doesn't love good people. There are no good people. God loves sinners. God's love for you, his welcoming of you into his presence, into intimate relationship with him is not based upon your moral record, but upon the righteousness of Christ that is yours by faith. And here's what that frees us to do. First, it frees us to admit the magnitude of our sin. See, religious people are always minimizing sin. But we, gospel Christianity, frees you to maximize the reality and the magnitude of your sin. And then secondly, to assure your heart against all the accusations of the conscience that God loves you and accepts you as you are, sin and all, because, look at verses 19 and 20. On the cross, Jesus, through his death in our place, has opened the way to God for us. The curtain has been torn in two. That is, 
The thing that separated God from us has been ripped from the top to the bottom, and we can come in fully assured of God's love for us, not with knees knocking, not with dread and foreboding, but celebrating it with joy. And here's what this means. It means that we've got to repent for the real sin. And the real sin is not what we think it is. The real sin is the sin of being discouraged about our sins. Did you hear that? The real sin is thinking that God's love is not great enough to cover our sins. The problem in your life and in my life is not our sins. The problem is that we still think the problem is our sins. The problem is that we still doubt that what Jesus has done is enough. We're unsure, so there's very little joy. And that's why there's anxiety and worry and regret, not confidence and courage. So the gospel and gospel security can heal the heart of guilt and shame. Okay, that's imperative number one. Now, the next two. Second imperative, imperative number three. So you see we're problem solving here, right? That's what we're doing with the gospel. Okay, Hebrews 10.23, the second imperative. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We've seen this before. I mean, this is what the Hebrews writers really worried about, that, we're, that, we're, that they're going to give up and go back. And so the process of sanctification then is an ever-increasing resolve and perseverance in the mission. That when it gets hard, you refuse to give up. When you get your feelings hurt, you refuse to walk away. When things don't go according to plan, you don't fall apart. You push past the obstacles. So the problem here is discouragement. You see, if there's no gospel security in your life, no confidence in the love of God for you at the center of your life, then you'll battle being constantly discouraged. Because hear me, listen, listen. Every circumstance you find yourself in will feel like a verdict either for you or against you. Do you hear that? I mean, it'll feel like a verdict either for you or against you. And so let me ask, where are you so discouraged that you want to quit? And let me ask this question. Let me be a good friend to you. Do you know that God is going to come through? No matter how difficult, no matter how desperate the situation might be at the moment, if you're discouraged and thinking about giving up, the answer is no. No, you don't know that, and that's the problem. You see, because the resolve and the energy to keep going comes from the security, look at verse 23, of knowing that despite the desperation of the situation, he who promised is faithful. And that's the argument. Let us hold fast without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Gospel security is the necessary condition for transformation. You have to know that beyond beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for you. That he's attentive to you in your struggle. And that he's working as he promised to provide for you and care for you. That's how you keep going. So gospel security heals discouragement. Then the third imperative. I'm just going to show it to you. And then I want us to come to the table. The third imperative is in verse 24 and 25. Stir up one another, he says. And so the way we fight against the guilty conscience and discouragement is in community. The means of the process of sanctification is an ever-increasing commitment to and involvement in a community of people who are committed to stirring up one another towards love and good works. That we are told we should consider one another. We should be mindful of one another. We should prioritize being with one another. Issues of time. Do not neglect the meeting together. You put yourself in spiritual danger if you neglect the corporate means of grace. Stir up one another. One translation says spur. So, you know, the way you kick a horse to get them moving, we're to kick one another, to get one another moving towards love and good works. That's what this means. And the problem here, of course, is our self-centeredness and self-concern. 
So how does the gospel heal us of our self-centeredness and self-concern? Well, think about what Jesus did for you. He did not think of his own needs. Paul says in Philippians 2 that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And when you see him making himself nothing for you, then you'll be one who can live with the mind of Christ, putting the needs of others ahead of your own, doing good for others and meeting their needs before you meet your own. See, with all three of these imperatives, you can see that gospel security is the necessary condition for transformation. If you're not sure, if you're not sure of God's love for you, then you won't draw near. You'll remain at a distance. You won't, you won't hold fast despite the circumstances. You'll be easily discouraged. You won't make room in your lives for other people. You'll be driven by the desire to use other people to meet your needs and to fill up the emptiness in your life that only God can fill. In all three of these cases, what is needed is greater faith in the gospel. See, spiritual breakthrough doesn't come through trying harder. It comes through believing the gospel more deeply. So the fight in the Christian life is to keep the indicatives and the imperatives in the right order and to remember that God's doing for us is what energizes our doing for him. Right? What God's doing for us is what energizes our doing for him that we don't do for God so that he'll do for us. God's salvation is by grace. He doesn't love us because we love him. We love him because he first loved us. And that is the reason this meal is so important and so central to our life together as a church. It is a sign and seal of these gospel truths. It is an aid given by God to keep the indicatives and the imperatives in the right order. And so let's come to it now. Seeking a greater faith in the gospel, which will empower us to a greater obedience for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Let's pray as we come to his table. Will you do that with me? Lord Jesus, use this meal that we celebrate together now. As you promised to, as an aid to our faith in all the places where we still doubt, we pray, Lord, help our unbelief that through greater faith in your gospel and in the gospel truths, we might come to a greater obedience to you that would glorify you as we bear fruit, that we would be faithful to the commands of Scripture to to draw near and to hold fast and to stir up one another that we might be a people characterized by radical gospel obedience. That's what we long for. So come now and meet with us and work in our hearts to that end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask that you stand and we're going to make a confession of faith together from the Heidelberg Catechism. So stand with me, please. I'm going to ask this question, then I'm going to ask that you answer it with the words on the screen behind me. Uh, Again, as a way of just expressing uh, the nature of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a uh, response to what we've heard in the scriptures this morning, I ask you, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is... be seated. Thank you. That is a great, a great, great testimony and statement of faith.
And so if that's true of you, if with a believing heart you have grasped hold of the promises of the gospel, then I invite you to come to this table. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what you need is not this bread or this cup. What you need is the Lord himself. And so we ask that you refrain from coming to take this bread or this cup and come and speak to one of the pastors or one of the elders instead so that we can uh, make sure that your relationship with Jesus is, is, uh, is right. Uh, secondly, this is a meal where we celebrate the reconciliation that is ours through the work of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, as we say, every time we, we, we celebrate this meal, if there are areas in your life where you're not reconciled, uh, the scripture is very clear, go and be reconciled, or at least do the work you have to do to seek reconciliation, and then come back to this table to celebrate all that God has done in Jesus to reconcile you to himself, okay? So those are the two just points of self-examination we go through every, every time we celebrate this meal together. The way we do this is we ask that you come down the center aisle, take the elements, return to your seats on the outside once everybody's been served, and we will partake of the elements all together. Uh, okay? And that's, that's uh, how we're going to do this. Also, there will be Ron Avery and Jean Lanehart will be up here. We've had them up here every week because we believe that there, there are places where we just need prayer uh, and where we just need God to do a work of healing in our hearts and our lives. And those men who are our elders in our church are here and they'll be available to pray for you if there are just things that you need somebody to lay hands on you and pray about. Please take advantage of them being up here. And the other men will come and, and help me serve the, these elements, okay? So let's pray together as we come uh, to the table of the Lord. And as I pray, men, if you're helping me this morning, would you please come? Lord Jesus, I pray that you use this meal powerfully in the way you promised to, in our hearts and in our lives. Strengthen us by it. Strengthen our faith that we might be bold in our obedience to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Take, eat, and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Please come as you feel led. Behold, the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made.
So we gather around the table of the king uh, to celebrate that who is like this king uh, who did not think for his own power and glory, but who made himself nothing to care and provide for his people, uh, which meant his becoming obedient even to the point of death upon the cross. Uh, And therefore, we take his body broken for us. Hebrews is very careful to say that through the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, there's no remission of sin, but in this blood can all of our sins not only be forgiven, but they are forgotten and cast into the depths of the sea. Amen? And so we take his blood.
Let's pray again. Father, we so graciously, grateful, we so gratefully and joyfully receive the gracious gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our behalf. And we pray, uh, like we've said this morning, that the result of our celebrating this meal together, the result of all that we have sung and said and, and prayed and heard and read this morning would be that the gospel of grace would come home to our hearts in a way that might be new and fresh to us that it would secure us against all our doubts and fears and worries so that we might truly be a people who obey you from the heart, a true heart in full assurance coming near to you, holding fast against all discouragement, stirring one another up against an unbelieving heart that can harden and lead to our falling away. Would you do this work in us, and would it be a work that would glorify you, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. So as you go to work for God, to feed uh, the, the homeless, to care for orphans and widows, as we're called to, to, um, to stir up one another to love and good works, don't go trying to work for him so that he will work for you. Go and work for him knowing that as you go, before you go, before he sends you, he sends you out with the promise of, of his working for you. And that's this benediction. So receive this benediction then as the promise of God's committing to work for you, even as he sends you out to work for him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.